0: Episode 114, Improving Patient Experience is Heavy Lifting. Today, I speak with Paul Rosen, MD, MPM, and MMM, and the Clinical Director of Service and Operational Excellence at Nemours Children's Hospital. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives, you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Just exactly how do we redesign the patient experience so that the system supports patient satisfaction and not all the weight falls on the shoulders of the doctor or other providers? How much transparency leads to improvements versus upset and burnt out physicians? Today, I speak with Dr. Paul Rosen, who spends about 80% of his job threading these needles in pursuit of engaged and satisfied patients and physicians and nurses. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Paul.
1: Thank you, Stacey. It's great to be here.
0: We are going to talk today about patient engagement, which does have a very cloudy Definition. What's your take on it?
1: Stacey, the field's moved from patient satisfaction to patient experience and now patient engagement. And one of the knocks on the movement is it has multiple different definitions, which can be cloudy. Sometimes it's defined as empowering patients or treating patients with dignity and respect, good communication. It also includes partnering with patients, controlling their pain. The definition I like to use is if, if you're taking your mother to the hospital, it's how you'd want your mother to be treated.
0: Your title is the Clinical Director of Service and Operational Excellence. So, obviously, over at Nemours, they have elevated the patient experience to warrant a director. Was this a new job or has Nemours always had such a position?
1: You know, Nemours has really been committed to patient experience for a long time. That work started in earnest probably around 2008. And we have a service excellence department. And in 2011, the decision was made to have a physician very engaged in that work to work with the other physicians across the health system. So I came to Nemours uh, in 2011 with a new position.
0: Do you feel like most physicians out there would agree I mean, because there's pros and cons here, right? If you're engaging patients, then maybe you're not seeing as many patients. I mean, it takes time here. As we all know, in the healthcare industry today, what's rewarded are procedures. Time is not compensated super well. So how many physicians are going to agree that patient experience or patient engagement takes precedence over the other things that they could have been doing while they're engaging with patient?
1: It's actually a very controversial area. It's not controversial when I talk to my friends who are not physicians or to family or to, you know, when I travel the country, I hear laymen come up to me and say how important this work is to, you know, treat people with respect and use good communication. But among the physician community, it's actually pretty controversial. And as physicians, we're trained to be skeptical and, and ask a lot of questions. And doctors want to see the data on whether engaging patients really adds to quality outcomes.
0: And is there data to support this idea that patient engagement leads to quality outcomes?
1: It's pretty mixed right now. You know, we have some research that shows that when you're engaging your patients and they have a great experience, they're more likely to follow your treatment regimen and there could be better control of chronic conditions and even decreased readmissions. But on the other side, there's also data that shows there's no correlation.
0: One thing is if we're asking patients to judge quality... I know one of the often cited things is how does a patient judge quality? Patients are obviously don't have medical degrees. So if a physician makes this clinical decision or that clinical decision, which one is the higher quality decision? Is that something that comes up?
1: That issue comes up all the time. I mean, physicians are really concerned about, you know, this movement is gaining steam and what does it really mean? And, you know, why should someone who's not medically trained judge my performance. So, I mean, it's true. If I'm a patient, I can't judge how the operation went. But patients are judging how they were treated, whether they were offered peace of mind, how their pain control was. So those are the things patients are judging.
0: It's like, you know, everyone's knocking patients for judging quality, but no one's asking, judging quality better than whom? You know, and everyone cites, well, insurance companies, perhaps, so, you know, private or public. On the other side, they've traditionally been functioning more like passive documenters of what occurred and less like proactive drivers of that care. Who better than the patient ultimately to judge quality? Has that come up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think I get asked a lot of times, well, you know, do you want me to provide quality or service? And I always get asked this question in or type of framework. And the reality is that Patients expect both. You know, they expect the right diagnosis and the right treatment plan, and they also expect to be treated a certain way. So, you know, the days of either or is, is no longer there. It's really more the expectations have risen. And to your point of this, you know, crowdsource reader reviews. You know, in healthcare, we're a little bit behind, as you know, where. Because of Amazon and, and TripAdvisor and Product Hunt and all the five-star, you know, rate reviews, consumers are used to that, and they're looking for information when they're making their healthcare choices, and they're going to apply those same, you know, tactics when they're picking a doctor or a hospital.
0: Do you see that actually... Making an impact. If I go on Yelp or Zocdoc or Healthgrades or name one of the internet better doctor, if I go on, on the internet and I select the doctor, but is that practice pervasive enough that hospitals and health systems and providers are actually seeing it impact their bottom line?
1: The first example of this we heard from University of Utah. I was at a talk with their CEO in 2013 at Stanford. And Utah was telling the story how they posted their patient satisfaction scores and their comments from patients on their website. And they were the first to do it. And then others have followed like Geisinger and UPMC and Cleveland Clinic and us as well at the Moors. And so we're early in this transparency movement. But what we've heard is that the search engine optimization uh, goes through the roof and patients are checking these sites and they're making their healthcare decisions based on what they read, especially the comments
0: you're as a health system. What's the object? What, what does good look like for you?
1: We uh, asked that same question to our patients, because as we were hearing about these health systems posting their information, we wanted to find out if our patients wanted that as well. So we took a couple of avenues. Number one, our marketing department did a great job with some focus group work. And then we have a, a family advisory committee, and we have a virtual one. And then what that means is we have about 150 families online that we can ping them with a question uh, anytime and then they give us feedback in real time. So between the marketing team and our uh, virtual family advisory, we just said, you know, this is the data we have. This is the information we have. Which pieces of this do you want to see? Do you want to see scores? Do you want to see comments? And the answer was yes, meaning, you know, share share the information. We need this stuff to make our decisions. So we took a couple years to roll this project out between 2014 and 2016. And the, the main driver for us was that, you know, this is something families want and need to make their health care decisions. And because we're so patient-centered, family-centered, that was the goal for us but we have heard, you know, other forces involved obviously with market forces that if consumers can see your data, they'll be more likely hopefully to come to your health system, but for us it was really the patient driver was what led the project.
0: What this reminds me of is when Amazon first launched and they allowed consumers to review products, Jeff Bezos was asked repeatedly why they would allow negative reviews. If your business model is to sell stuff, this is I'm um, imitating one of the queerants right now. If your business model is to sell stuff, why, <laughs> why are you showing these negative reviews? And Bezos came back with a really interesting comment. He said, our business model isn't to sell stuff. It's to help our customers buy stuff. And ultimately, people will buy repeatedly from a trusted source. So if you are helping people make the right decisions and you're becoming very trustworthy in the process, that has ultimately provides a much superior buying experience, but also a, a long term loyal customer.
1: That's right. And you know, we had to have those conversations with some of our doctors that were were really asking, you know, why are you posting negative comments? Um,
0: I was just gonna ask you, how do physicians like this? <laughs>
1: And uh, yeah, so we had, you know, a lot of conversations in the hallway, the lecture hall, you know, in the parking lot, et cetera, um, email, you know, why would you post that? And just had to explain, you know, this is not a marketing project. This is a transparency project, which means showing kind of some of our negative stuff will help us get better and it'll engender trust. And it's our job to help families make their healthcare choices and sharing this will help us do that.
0: Let me just bring up, A point which I'm sure comes up in those physician conversations, which is that if a patient waits a really long time in the waiting room, for example, or if they can't find parking, or if the exam room is a little bit dirty, that patient might rate the physician poorly. But all of those things are less about the physician and things that the physician can control and more about the facility.
1: That's exactly right. We heard that concern from physicians. And because of that, we really focused on posting the scores and the comments that are focused on the physicians and not some of the other things out of the physician control. So we did hear that feedback.
0: Well, if you were going to parse up your day, how much of your day is spent doing various things?
1: I spent a little bit of time still, obviously, with the transparency work. And we posted 4,500 comments and we had an appeals process in place like the other health systems so that if a physician was uncomfortable with a comment, you know, they could appeal it. So we have a couple, you know, physician reviewers, and out of the 4,500 comments, I think we had 12 appeals, and so really, at least with our rollout, it went pretty smoothly. And then in terms of the rest of my time, I guess I do some different things. I spend a lot of time shadowing patients. What that means is I kind of meet them in the parking lot and then walk with them through their experience, and I look for defects in our system. So I look to see if patients are getting lost or how they're doing with their doctor, And then I also spent a lot of time shadowing physicians, which means are there opportunities for us to design a better service so that the doctors have an easier time delivering care?
0: As you're doing the shadowing, what are things that typically might be overlooked in this patient flow or patient experience that you have honed in on while you're following patients around?
1: Well, we've done some mapping of of patient flow and and sometimes, you know, each department is kind of focused on their own service. So child comes in and they check in and then they go to the waiting room and then they're called back for an x-ray and they have to check in a second time. And then they go back to the waiting room and then they go to the doctor. So when you map out these flows, kind of reminds you of, you know, renting a movie in blockbuster in the nineties where you're, you're kind of back and forth. So the question is, how do we look at that, remove the pain points for the patient, make it more of a seamless flow?
0: And what does that look like?
1: Like you said, it's not keeping people in the waiting room. In medicine, a lot of times, as you know, we have, let's say, you know, the medical assistant go into the room and then leave. And then the nurse goes into the room and asks some questions and leaves. Uh, And then the doctor comes in. It's this kind of back and forth. And patients can get frustrated when they're repeating themselves with some of the same questions and they feel like they're not being heard. So we've done some projects where We do what's called swarming, where the whole team walks in together and then the patient just has to say their story one time and they're reassured that, that everyone heard it at the same time.
0: I could see that that, number one, is a cultural shift. And number two, it also takes a lot of coordination, you know, to get everybody in the same place, unless they're kind of traveling as a pack. How do you make that work systemically?
1: It's a challenge to make it work, you know, across the whole organization. It's a new thing. You know, people have to try it on for size. I mean, our emergency department has done some of this work where instead of, again, you know, you have six different providers coming in at different times, you kind of bunch them together. Uh, it was a project to, you know, get the nurse and get the resident and, and get everyone together. To go see the patient together, but um, you know we've heard the feedback from families that they've been coming for years, and and it was the best experience they've had. So we think it's a worthwhile project.
0: How exactly do you go about this? What does your process look like? That you wander down to the ED one day and you're like, hey guys, we're going to try something new.
1: Uh, you know, a little bit of that. I mean, a little bit of oh no, here he comes again. You know, let's hide. But. Um, <laughs> We, we have an organizational focus on improvement and, and we adopted continuous improvement and lean a few years ago. So from the board and CEO and our senior leadership, improvement work, continuous improvement is, is very supported. The leadership picks teams to work with and patient flows and, and, and areas to look at like emergency medicine and the operating room and other areas to work systemically. And then whenever a physician or anyone reaches out to me and says, you know, you know, I'm struggling with my patient experience or or can you do some work with me? Of course, you know, we do a lot of, you know, coaching and mentoring one-on-one.
0: I was also going to say, you know, because there's two sort of pieces to this. One is a process component, obviously, that if patients are waiting a really long time or can't figure out how to get from one department to another, that's not necessarily something that a provider is or a physician is going to be able to fix, especially unilaterally. On the other hand, there are certain things that happen, obviously, within the exam room, which are equally important. What does leveling up look like from a personnel standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little of everything. It's, it's certainly coaching, and we do training, and it's also looking at our data. So, you know, you mentioned before about, well, if you come to the waiting room, that'll kind of pollute the, the experience with the provider. You know, we looked at it. We get 20,000 surveys a year just in the outpatient side. So we looked at surveys for the last three years. So we looked at 60,000 surveys and we learned that what really drives the overall experience is, yes, like you said, the interaction with the doctor, also the cheerfulness of the practice and the fact that the team worked together. When we look at the data, you know, we get these learnings and then we try and pivot our training towards those things as well.
0: And how do you know what to focus on and what to disregard? And I'm thinking of the consummate example right now, which is patient comes in with a scratchy throat and demands an antibiotic or demands a CT scan or demands an opioid for their, their pain management. And then they give a really crappy review because they didn't get what they thought they needed. You know, how do you sort through and figure out who actually was doing the right thing, although maybe not in the, I, I don't know, but how do you sort through this?
1: You know, that's a major concern of many physicians that you just want me to, you know, give a prescription that's not necessary, et cetera. And it's especially contentious because a lot of physician salaries and bonuses depend on their patient satisfaction scores. But you know, no one in the, in the patient experience field would approve of writing a prescription that's not indicated or ordering a test that's not indicated. I mean, the hope would be that it's a conversation and it's a partnership. And if you're not you know, ordering a test or explaining why, and then hopefully with that explanation, everything will come out positive on the other side. But it's true. I mean, it's a real concern of physicians. On the positive note, I mean, patients in general really skew towards the higher numbers with their rating scores. So I, I think some physicians are, are worried that we'll get these low scores. But in general, when you look at, at the data in, in aggregate, the scores are, are skewed to the high end.
0: If a patient comes in insisting that they need an antibiotic and the physician, you know, explains why it might not be the best idea in the world or not indicated at all, actually, that a patient will likely reverse their thinking that that patients are malleable and, and open to obviously experience that a physician, you know, why they're there in the first place.
1: It kind of depends. I mean, if you walk in and see me, Stacy, and I walk in the room and I sit down at the computer and I don't introduce myself and I'm not smiling and I just start typing away <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, over, I look out over the computer screen or, or not, or, you, you know, you see my back and I say, you don't need this antibiotic. It's just a virus, you know, versus, versus if I, you know, kind of welcome you and, and make you comfortable and, and we're able to talk and get to know each other and then have that conversation. So it's really the context of the whole experience.
0: sounds like it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with this trustworthy thing. You know, like if I feel like you are, as a physician, caring for me or that the patient feels like they're being cared for. And then you make a suggestion, which might be counter to what the patient originally thought, that it's taken in the spirit with which it's intended.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when you look at consumer surveys what do patients want from their doctors. So you do see things like good training and knowledgeable and up-to-date on the latest research. But the issues that really bubble up to the top are treating me with dignity, respect, caring, listen, took me seriously. Those are the items that bubble up to the top of the list.
0: And you know this because you've looked at just countless patient surveys. So you really can see what the trend lines are.
1: Yeah, there's there's consumer surveys out there and consultants put these reports together. And then we have our own data. You know, we're, we're a pediatric health system. So we really look at our data on a regular basis and and try and get some learning out of it. And then there's also these startups, as you know, that are coming out where um, the startups are mining Twitter and social media data and looking on the web at what patients are saying about doctors and hospitals. And then there's a new, there's natural language processing, which is sort of algorithms that look through these patient comments and look for deeper meanings within the the patient comments.
0: If you are a physician right now or a provider organization that is, employs physicians, it's pretty apparent based on what you're saying that patient experience does matter and that, you know, as we're talking about, there's the process elements and the training elements and you might not be nearly as sophisticated as obviously Nemours is, what advice do you have for somebody who might be a bit more of a rookie in this field? Like, where do they start? What do they do?
1: Well, I think where where we started years ago was just, you know, recognizing that we need to work in this area and focus on and improve. And it really started with our board, our CEO and our leadership, just stating the fact that this is an area of focus for us. And we're gonna improve our results. And the expectation is that, you know, we have all the doctors and nurses and everyone working on this. So I think stating, you know, where you're at now and then setting a target is helpful.
0: What would be the next step? Okay, so department gets put in place, leadership imperative gets put in place. Is there anything that you see is really a must-have or an essential ingredient in your daily work that either leads to your success or would impede it had it not been evident?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I I have, you know, some friends and colleagues in other industries, hospitality, hotels. So they say to me, Paul, let me get this straight. You're trying to improve patient experience or or customer experience, but half your staff is burned out. Is that right? And then they kind of pat me on the back and laugh. You know, what's really become a hot topic is this idea of healthcare professional burnout. I think we knew it was in the the nursing realm years ago. and, And over the last three years, it's really been reported in articles, blogs, and papers, and books that over half our physicians are burnt out, especially the the reports from Mayo Clinic. I think in order to really deliver great patient experience, we have to look at the whole ecosystem and not just the patient side, but we have to figure out a way that the doctors and the providers are enjoying what they do and are enabled to deliver that great experience.
0: And how do you go about that?
1: We talked to some health systems and some consultants that are working in this area, and they told us really the first step is acknowledging that it's a problem and just committing to working on it. We were told that there are many health systems out there that are not focused on physician burnout or healthcare professional burnout. So we're starting to focus on it, and we're surveying the doctors about their top three stressors of their day. We we go department by department and ask this question. And then each department, whether it's primary care or, or emergency medicine, Uh, they kind of bubble up based on the doctor feedback, what's stressing them out, what they like to work on. And then we try and, you know, work on improving that area for each department.
0: So you're going about it department by department. And I'm sure the things that are bubbling up are the EHR system or the documentation requirements. Maybe I should pose that question to you instead of me making stuff up here.
1: You're exactly right. So, you know, when you look at the national data, We see that some of the driving forces behind physician burnout would be working with the electronic medical record, lack of autonomy, and lack of alignment with leadership. And then when we survey our own folks in their departments, we're finding some opportunities in those areas. So one department said their number one issue is pajama time, meaning they're not tucking their kids in. They're uh, in their pajamas closing their notes at 9 o'clock at night. Or Saturday night, date night is a date with your laptop to close your notes. So that's an area to work on. And uh, we're going to get some scribes in to help the docs with the documentation. And then, you know, depending on the department, different things have bubbled up as well.
0: Scribes. Is there anything else which you are, you know, preliminarily, I get the idea that you're just embarking on this endeavor. Is there anything else that you're seeing as potential?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do. You know, there's, there's dictation software where the physician dictates a note and it goes directly, it populates directly into the EMR and then just, you know, different ways to use our staff. So sometimes when these new initiatives come out, they get put upon, let's say the doctor or the provider, whereas you could maybe have your medical assistant help you with it. So I think just thinking differently on what different staff members can do, getting that teamwork going and then having everyone you know, perform to the highest level of their license, it'll take some of the stress off the physician.
0: You know, I know in, in certain organizations, culturally, kind of got the office and they've got their little fiefdom, and they're not super inclined necessarily to, let's just say, maybe their motivation is a little bit less about patient experience and a little bit more about protecting their domain.
1: When you're talking about changing how clinicians work, whether it's a nurse, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant. I mean, physicians, you know, they get in there, you know, and, I, and I'm one too, and I, you know, you get in your habit of, of how you work and no one's, you know, sort of volunteering saying, yes, please come disrupt my workflow. So I think when you're trying to do a new project or redesign, there's got to be some benefit to the clinician. I mean, if you're, if you're redesigning something and it adds 16 steps to the, to the Docker workflow, you, you know where that's going to go. They're not going to adopt it. So you really need to think about, How do you redesign the new process so that it's helpful to all the parties involved? And you need to work with the docs and have them help you redesign it. If you just show up on Monday morning and say, here's your new redesign, you know, hope you like it, it's not going to go anywhere. We're doing a project on pain right now around procedures. So that means that kids in the hospital, they get blood work and IVs and all these different procedures. And our nurses are very committed to reducing pain and anxiety around those. So we rolled out a project with our pharmacy and the nursing team where we're giving kids something called the J-Tip, which is a little device that puts uh, numbing medicine on the skin before getting a needle. We got a little bit of traction, but we didn't see the traction we were expecting. So what we did is we just shadowed the nurses to look at their workflow and realize that, well, in order to you know get the J-Tip, they have to go to the Pyxis, and they have to enter this into the computer, and it's just kind of step after step. So once we learn what the pain points for the nurse was then, and remove those, then we really got more traction on, on doing the, the new procedure. So yeah, you can't just go to a clinician and say, here's the change, and, and you, re- you really got to design it so that it's not adding to their workload.
0: Is there any more examples of things that you uncovered upon investigation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think, you know, we're all coming with our different perspective. And I, I think the benefit of being a physician is that I can see patients and I know a little bit, you know, where the other docs are coming from. But working in emergency medicine, it's it's also just what's your belief system and and what's your fear? You know, if you're a physician in the in the emergency department, you're worried about, am I going to miss a diagnosis? You know, you only get this one chance to see a child, and if I send them home and they get worse, am I going to miss something? Or so just understanding where everyone's at and where your perspective is. So I I think you know I, we spent a lot of time in the emergency medicine department doing some lean work and some redesign. And at the beginning of of the engagement, I didn't really understand kind of how ED docs think. But as we moved along with the projects, you know, you understand kind of what their concerns are, and then you design with those in mind.
0: Give me an example of knowing that ED docs are very concerned about making sure that they're not missing a diagnosis. How did that lean workflow originally proposed alter?
1: Getting back to the idea of, you know, seeing patients in serial versus parallel, meaning that the triage nurse sees the patient, and then the next nurse sees the the check-in nurse sees the patient, then the medical student sees the patient, then the fellow, and then the attending. So taking that kind of long-established workflow that's been going on for decades and then trying to pivot towards more consolidated teams, there were a lot of worries. Well, if we change our workflow, is this going to put the patient at risk? Is this going to be a safety issue? So it took just, you know, a lot of work and engagement and and testing and reiteration to make the clinicians comfortable that changing over to something new was not going to harm their patients, was not going to, you know, destroy their workflow and uh, was going to increase patient engagement
0: that parable. Sometimes the fastest way home is the longest way around. Um, (laughs) It definitely sounds like if we're working and literally this is life or death, especially as we're talking about the emergency department, that the way the fastest and leanest way to go about it is to maybe minimum viable product approach. You know, you try something small iteratively and test it. Make sure that everybody on the team agrees that this is the right thing to do, and that patient care is actually improved, not compromised. And then iteratively move forward. Is that kind of how the process looks?
1: No, no, you got it. I mean, you just you just have to work with people and, and work with the clinicians. And you know, the lesson I've learned is you can't just have this kind of patient-only approach. You really got to think of all the other players in the, in the ecosystem. So you know, if I design a new OR process that the surgeons hate, you know, we both know it's going to go nowhere. I mean, it's kind of like Southwest Airlines or Zappos, and I think Zappos is number one in customer service, yet they focus on their employee engagement. So again, it's it's if you just start doing things, the clinicians, without their input, you're going to disengage them, and you'll go backwards instead of forwards.
0: If someone is interested in, in learning more or has a great interest in engaging in this conversation, where would you suggest that they find out more information or interact with others in the same boat?
1: What we did was we called around to the health systems that are working in the burnout space. That would be Stanford University, Mayo Clinic. We've read their articles and obviously their consultants as well. I tend to read a lot of blogs. (laughs) So, you know, Kevin M.D. and certainly New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst addresses some of these issues. So there's really a lot out there. You know, if you Google these topics, you'll see a lot written about it.
0: If someone is interested in learning more about what Nemours has going on, where can they get that information?
1: There's uh, you know, our website, which is Nemours.org. Obviously, anyone's free to reach out to me and you know, happy to have a conversation anytime.
0: Fantastic. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Oh, it was wonderful. Thank you.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com,